Have you ever wondered where you can find really good scissors? Handcrafted products for life? The world's most beautiful scissors are now available at cicelier.com. That's C-I-S-E-L-I-E-R. French for scissor maker. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm Christopher Bea, the editor of Harper's Magazine. In this week's episode, Harper's deputy editor, John Baskin, speaks with Jason Blakely. Jason is a professor of political science at Pepperdine University and the author of We Built Reality. He is also the author of this month's Harper's cover story, Doctor's Orders, COVID-19 and the Science Wars. So... I want to start with the strange predicament that your article describes all of us finding ourselves in during the pandemic. And there's an image you use that really vividly, I think, illustrates that predicament. You write in the essay, it was as if the authorities had set off the fire alarm in a nation-sized movie theater. One half of the audience vacated their seats in muted panic, while the rest defiantly continued to eat their popcorn. So, The image is an attempt to evoke uh, this situation during the pandemic where one part of society seemed to become obsessed with scientific expertise, you know, putting those lawn signs about uh, on their lawns about trusting the science and making a kind of demigod of public health officials like Anthony Fauci. And another part of society seemed to turn just as passionately to a hardline skepticism about science and expertise, which often tipped into conspiracy theories about the virus and about the officials like Fauci who were trying to give out advice about how we should protect ourselves from it. And one of the novel things I found about your piece is that you don't just say, you know, here are two different demographics with different uh, ideas about science and different education levels that accounts for the way they responded. You, you actually uh, sort of offer a theory of how these two phenomena are connected. Um, and so I wanted to start with how the two phenomena, meaning the sort of anti-science and the very passionate pro-science, trust the science crowd, how those two things are connected. So I wanted to start by, yeah, just asking if that sounds like a good summary of the setup of your article, and then for you to say a bit about how you do connect those two phenomena in the piece. Yeah, thank you. I mean, that's a great question. I do think that's a good summary. Uh, One way at it is just from the personal lived experience of the pandemic that actually was sort of the origin of the article for myself as well, which is, you know, that, that description of of being in a nation-sized movie theater and either you know leaving with muted panic or continuing to eat your popcorn is something that actually, even though I described it as two different groups of people, I think everyone at times um, felt the pull of the other one. Some people felt them more intensely than others. So for myself, for instance, uh, my son is an asthmatic and he's very young and I was quite quite frightened of the virus, quite alarmed. And I, I have a huge respect for doctors, scientists, and so on. So I wanted to listen very carefully. At the same time, as the pandemic wore on, um, as a parent, uh, as, as a professor, as a teacher, um, just as someone you know, making his way around our society, I started to feel these really strong um, cross pressures you know, about other possible losses or other possible goods that, that were in play. And I started to become more uncomfortable and even let myself feel a bit confused about, you know, what all was at stake, you know, to give a concrete example, for instance, you know, um, 
the very same son I have, like many, many kids, I mean, he would have been uh, two, three years old. It started to affect him, the social isolation in a very strong way. So I was trying to work through uh, an attempt to bring together what seemed to be opposites, which is a sort of a popular upswell of anti-scientific sentiment, which certainly veers off into sort of irrationalist directions. I don't deny that. But I was trying to see what was true in that and why people lived that um, perception so intensely, while also not letting go of um, the, you know, the, the sort of authority of science to describe certain things like you know, what a vi- what COVID-19 virus is, how it spreads and so on, right? And I wanted to sort of, for myself first and foremost, but also as a political theorist, um, try to come to a better narrative understanding of, of what these two seeming opposites um, might have had to both, uh, you know, sort of shed light on our situation. Yeah, that's really interesting to thinking about how it how it sort of the the battle first takes place inside ourselves, where you have these moments of, um, you know, feeling a lot of anxiety about the pandemic and just wanting an expert to tell you what to do and tell you what the right thing to do is. Right. And then I because I can identify with that, too. And then but then on the other side, you sometimes have this part of yourself. And maybe this has to do with just being, you know, raised in a in a, in a democratic society where you feel that your judgment and your um your ability to say what you should prioritize in different times counts. And and I did feel myself too, this sometimes visceral reaction against the sort of um, imposition of authority from experts um, and just being told you have to do this now and this next and, you know, um, and, and there's no room for debate about those things. And so th- that's what I thought was so interesting about your piece is the way it sort of described these movements in society um, as being counterposed in that way and almost playing off one another. Yeah, I think we're in this really bad way right now where what appear to be two opposing sides actually sort of feed each other in a vicious cycle. On one side, you might, I mean, putting it too simply, see people who, as you were saying, they they kind of give, they overextend the authority of science to be able to somehow resolve for us deep existential dilemmas, you know, about how to live life, what's significant, what's meaningful, what's valuable, what's worth dying for, what's worth getting sick for, or is there nothing that's worth dying for and getting sick for? And if so, why not? But science can't answer those questions. And then on the other side, a group of people increasingly sort of um, restless and feeling like they're being duped or manipulated and, and, and overreacting really and saying, well, now science has nothing to teach us and Maybe science is even just a name for an extremely complicated um, world system of domination by elites or liberals or whatever, whatever you fill it in with there. And some of them are, are indeed very sort of like um, off the rails, even you could say wicked theories sometimes. And yet there was this perception that scientism or you know, the overextension of scientific authority was being used to resolve questions that it really wasn't competent to resolve. And in that sense, I have a kind of kernel of affirmation that I want to retain for all the, you know, the sort of the, the people who are, are said to be sort of scientifically illiterate and so on, or, or too um, rebellious when it comes to, to learning what science has to teach. I want to give a, an affirmation to them insofar as they, they recognized at an intuitive level that sometimes what was being um stated as policy or enacted as policy in the name of science really was beyond scientific competence to resolve, you know, 
And I think people feel at a very visceral level, well, what's worth getting sick for? What's worth dying for, right? I mean, uh, I think we mentioned, <laughs> mentioned in the article is, you know, we buried people by Zoom, this, this kind of um, quote by a, a public health expert, you know, some very extreme human experiences happened during that time on all sides, you know, and, and people died of COVID-19 in huge numbers. So, you know, there was a lot of um, deep sort of uh, trauma but and sacrifice um, but people also felt oftentimes, I think, as though they weren't really being listened to in terms of what their community should look like. And of course, that's central to democracy is having a say in what your community looks like. Yeah. Can you can you just give a couple of examples of sort of during COVID where that overextension of scientific authority played out? Um some things you mentioned and yeah, some things you mentioned in the article, you talk a bit about the mask mandates, you talk about school closures, you also talk about the way that the public health officials responded to the George Floyd protests by sort of invoking public health. So I, I don't know if, you, if you, you could mention a couple of those kind of things and, and sort of how what you call scientism, the overextension of scientific authority manifested itself. Yeah, I think there were so many examples that, you know, they're almost everywhere you look, but some real big ones that come up in the article, for instance, are here in California, where I live, um, there were there were shutdowns of the public school system. And, you know, you're dealing with every single level of society here socioeconomically. So you're dealing with households where both parents are out working wage jobs or um, can't be at home. So what it means to have a stay-at-home order is very different than for someone like myself from the credentialed class or who can remote work. So there were these very, there were these kind of um, policies, for instance, that cited data or cited you know um, a certain level of spread, viral spread in the community, and then it was said, well, schools can't be open because it's not safe, and it was presented as just sort of a descriptive statement that due to viral spread they couldn't be open. At the same time, um, private schools were not subject to those mandates, and some wealthier Californians, most most kind of infamously the governor, um, was able to have his kids already back at school, Governor Gavin Newsom. So, um, you know, there, there was almost like a loophole there for certain people who had the means to have more flexibility and, you know, to show a certain amount of sympathy for Gavin Newsom. I mean, he had the same problem I did as a dad, which is... Hmm. You know, he's wrestling with with these competing goods. And although dangerous to some children with pre-existing conditions, COVID was far less dangerous. I, I think the science is pretty clear on to younger kids than it is to the older you get. So, you know, here's the governor of California on the one hand mandating to um, a lot of middle class and working class people that you absolutely have no access to the schools, while at the same time, he seems to have a loophole for his kids, Right. Um, so he's wrestling with certain goods there. And that would mean to me be an example of, you know, Gavin Newsom, if you look at the public statements there, and this went on across the nation, um, justified the policy by saying he was just following neutral data science description. But in fact, a, a decision was being made, a discernment, a deliberation over what the good was, what, what the common good was. Right. And that's a theme you return to in the article, this sort of invocation of neutral data, uh, when actually political decisions are being made. And I, I want to zoom out a little bit. Uh, so the article, do, this article, Doctor's Orders, comes out of a book that you wrote uh, called We Built Reality. And the book is about the limitations of social scientific theory to be a guide 
uh, for how to reshape society sort of across the board, not just, in fact, COVID doesn't play a part in the book because it was written before that. But, um, you know, in terms that you talk about economics, you talk about war, you talk about culture and politics and the different ways that scientific authority is invoked um, in these domains. Can you uh, say something about your argument in that book and the point you make, I think convincingly, about why a social scientific theory, say about how the economy works, does not work in the same way as a theory from the so-called hard sciences, say about how the solar system works? Yeah. And We Built Reality came out the summer of the lockdown. So it was a very strange feeling to have it feel that relevant coming out at that time. It was just, yeah. but the, yeah. So the central argument of We Built Reality is that the human sciences, the social sciences are different than the natural sciences, because in the natural sciences, if you describe the planets or the solar system, you know, your, your language about it, your theories about it can get it right or wrong, but the planets out there uh, don't, don't change or um, you know, the, the, the solar system doesn't change because your theory is right or wrong. In the human sciences, by contrast, um, there are descriptive dimensions to all social theories. I don't want to deny that, but there is the possibility because we are language animals, as the philosopher Charles Taylor says, of taking on board the very theories that are just supposed to be describing us, and we can act, enact them and become more like them. And that's a huge uh, central obsession of We Built Reality is all the many, many ways in which what looks like a descriptive theory. So for instance, I talk at length about, for instance, broken windows theory, that infamous theory that if you have broken windows in a neighborhood, then it leads to all kinds of other crime because it, it, it signals disorder, led to sort of you know zero tolerance policing in New York City. And so it enacted a regime, the idea that you know, you had this description itself became a kind of social script or a real big one in the 20th century that I think quickly evokes it for a lot of people. Is if you think of some of the theories of classical Marxism, you know, and part of those were descriptive theories and yet they helped enact kind of like a social script, an entire social world that looked like the Soviet bloc and so on. Whether that was a perversion of Marxism or not, things that were said to be descriptive were enacted. And um, a big one for the article is uh, free market economics in the 90s and the early aughts and the way in which a kind of discourse was built around, you know, the economy as as an object, as an accountancy object, you know, what counted as the economy is, you know, in the, in the famous Clinton campaign slogan, it's it's the economy stupid, you know, what, what was this object, the economy? And in the piece I talk a bit about, as well as in the book about how the economy included certain things that were counted. So for instance, you know, GDP and different, um, you know, job indexes and whatnot, but it didn't count other things like ecological devastation or, you know, homelessness, evictions. And I thought that there was something similar going on with the pandemic where there was an attempt to build a, a, an object that was purportedly just descriptive, the pandemic, but this description was actually used to then enact policy, kind of like a social script. Well, if the pandemic is in, you know, code red, then absolutely no schools or absolutely no uh, meeting up at synagogue or church or what have you. Um, so yeah, I think that that's the sort of connection there between We Built Reality and and the Harper's piece. Right. The pandemic was kind of given agency, whereas people, citizens were not. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> um, it's interesting hearing you talk about even just in your way of thinking, the idea of a perversion of Marxism, it's almost a misunderstanding of like what Marxism is insofar as it's a social theory or a theory about society 
the idea that the theory can stand in some neutral ground and that the society either measures up to it or not is a misunderstanding. It's different than saying, well, that's a perversion of the theory of gravity, for instance. Yeah, exactly. And I think that what I wish that social scientists, social theorists, and just regular citizens across the board would be a little more aware of is that every single descriptive theory we have about social reality has the potential to have a kind of world-making effect, to use sort of the jargon, but it can be enacted, it can be performed. And we are very sort of bad readers. We're not very literate when it comes to social science in the sense that we take it a little bit too much at face value as though it's outside the stream of culture and politics, a little bit like, oh, here's my description of the planets and the planets are over there and my description is over here and there's a big yawning gap between the two and you know the one doesn't affect the other. Well, I never think social reality is that way. We always have to be aware of, even if um, a given social theory hasn't in fact built the world in any particular way, there are always, there's always a world building potential in a set of descriptions. That doesn't mean description goes out the window. I'm not, I'm not a skeptic when it comes to um, there being social facts and so on. It just means that humans are a weird animal. We can enact, we can become more like the descriptions about us. You know, we can kind of double down on them. And so there's sort of ethical um, and ideological dimensions to our social theories that we often miss. Yeah, well, and as, as you say in the article, um, the irony of this think it's irony. I'm always paranoid about when I use that word because there are people who police whether it's really irony or not. But uh, but you mentioned that Max Weber, one of the founders of modern social science, you know, made a big deal about the idea that social scientists should always be careful to keep their work distinct from politics, of, of social science being a realm of facts and politics a realm of values. Um, I'm curious if you have a kind of story about how it then happened that we came to this place where social science had become so heavily enmeshed in political decisions, such that they almost become the ultimate authority for them, as we saw happen in the pandemic so often. Yeah, I think it's a recurrent tradition in modern political life. And I think the reason for it is partly good, which is post-natural science revolution, everyone who is you know a thoughtful person is just rightfully impressed by the natural sciences. I mean, they're just spectacular. Even look at how quickly uh, a vaccine was developed. I mean, putting aside for the, the many controversies that are now around the vaccine, I mean, there was something just sort of marvelously ingenious about how quickly that happened. Right. Um, it feels like this one part of our society that actually works. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It feels like it works as a place of dialogue where people actually arrive at true theories and 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 it actually you can see the the social benefits, you can see you can even just marvel at the beauty of science. Scientific theories can be astonishingly beautiful beyond, you know, beyond even just whether they're true or they're helpful for society and developing vaccines, you know, you you listen to an uh, an astronomer tell you about outer space and it, and there's something beautiful there. But I think the temptation there is toward uh, overblowing scientific authority and having it try to resolve certain existential or what you could call significance questions for us, which is um, at the heart of politics, ethics, and being human. And there, I think there's a really bad temptation that keeps recurring in many, many different forms in modern society to say that science can actually resolve for you interpretive or meaning or significance questions when it can't. And so then what you end up with is Scientism, which is a particular ideology or particular cultural regime, particular po political regime, just declaring it itself scientific. Right. So 
Let me pose a, a potential challenge or what someone might say, you know, to your to, to your thesis in this article. They might be sympathetic even to the point that this scientism exists, that occasionally science is, is sort of overextended to try to solve problems it can't solve. But they might say, you know, we, we live in a large and highly complex society where social problems often have sources it's very hard for normal people to understand. Uh, you know, I think Don DeLillo writes somewhere, you know, if a caveman came to us today and asked how our refrigerators worked, most of us wouldn't be able to tell them. <laughs> and, you know, much less would we be able to tell them how, you know, uh, the f- aspects of high finance work or or the banking system or whatever. So in a world like this, especially when we're faced with an existential public health threat like COVID, is it really so wrong to ask people to trust the experts? I mean, what are what are sort of the alternatives to that? It's not wrong to ask them to trust them within their reign of competence. What is wrong is to extend to them a competence that they don't, in fact, have. And that ends up being self-defeating and coming back and sort of undermining science. So one of my sort of um, philosophical priors that sort of comes up in, in in the piece is that you can't have an expert about what is significant to you in in your cultural, social, and political life. You know, so if when you're when you're facing something like plague, you know, a deadly plague, uh, questions will come up about well, what's worth risking infection for? And I I maintain that every American felt this at some very deep level during the pandemic, even if it was later stuffed down for political reasons. Do, how close do I get to my family member around this holiday? Um, do I visit this person? Do I try to put my child into schools? Do do I make it to this appointment I have that you know is very important to me with a friend or a therapist or what have you in person to see them in flesh? Um, and I think that those kind of problems, part of the drama of being human is that there is no expert that can resolve for you those interpretive sort of meaning problems. And in that sense, I'm, I'm a kind of a deliberative Democrat, small d Democrat, that I think that you just get wrong what people value without listening to them first. And there might be different answers produced by different communities, which is something you talk about in the article, right? So... All the complexity, I, I want to affirm that of, 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 of science today, of, you know, um, even the refrigerator, like you joked, but those are, those are only in an advisory role to existential questions about, yeah, but what's meaningful to you? I cannot answer for you what my neighbor is willing to die for or risk getting sick for. Right. So the ideal would be something like you described toward the end of the article, this idea of local communities finding a way to get together and, and make decisions about what's most important to them. And I guess the ideal would be to have the scientist or the expert so-called in a kind of advisory position where they can lay out, here are the here are the consequences of making this decision, here are the consequences of prioritizing this thing. But it's ultimately the community that gets that, that then gets to decide between the options. Yes. And that's a commitment there that I have politically to democracy that comes out of um, a sort of humanism that I hold to, which is that when it comes to interpreting meanings, beliefs, significances, um, there people are have to be listened to in order to even understand what's sort of guiding their life and what they hold to be important. And I think that one of the really uh, bad ways that we're in right now as a society is that uh, the scientism, the overextension of scientific authority 
led to a lot of sort of wonks and technocrats, policy experts, elites, and so on, essentially making deep ethical decisions for other people. And oftentimes it was in favor of what the Italian philosopher Giorgio Gambin very infamously called bare life. There was an ethic behind the zero spread, the at all costs, let's not get sick. The ethic was a kind of bare life or biological life is higher. Living another day is higher than those other goods that you br- you're bringing to bear, Jason. But you right. can't answer that question for other citizens without them feeling like it's b- their their own sense of what's meaningful, their own say in what their life looks like, which is fundamental to democracy, is to have a say in what your community looks like, what your life looks like, is being overridden, even somewhat despotically. So I thought Agamben was um, quite irresponsible in a number of things he said because he divorced himself from what science has to teach us oftentimes. But something he absolutely got right was the perception that oftentimes this kind of rule in the name of data actually had an ethical picture behind it that was being imposed on people, which was bare life to live another day is higher than to be there at the funeral with you know the person or to get together for del- democratic deliberation or to get together to worship or whatever the other goods are that people felt pulled by. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up Agamben because I think he, he speaks to this phenomenon, which actually will lead me to something I wanted to ask you about next, uh, which has to do with the uh, Democratic presidential campaign. They may not seem related at first, but um, Agamben speaks to this figure that's become a familiar kind of figure. Often they're on the right, although in his case, he's on the left, um, of someone who sort of has what you might consider a healthy skepticism or starts off with a healthy skepticism about the sort of rule by expert, rule by scientists, but then also tends to tip over into this sort of almost conspiratorial type of thinking, which denies that there could be any truth, you know, coming from the scientists and almost by definition, anything they say is, is um, suspect and, and, and seen as part of some kind of power structure. And um, we emailed a little bit about this interview, uh, some of the interviews that have been coming out with Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's a candidate running for, um, for president, uh, you know, running, running in the Democratic primary against Biden. Uh, he's not going to win, but it's an interesting kind of phenomenon of um, he's also one of these figures that draws support from a certain kind of populist uh, revolt against expert authority. And on the other hand, uh, often tips over into a very kind of conspiratorial worldview that really gets divorced from any kind of recognizable reality, at least it seems to me. And so I, I wonder why, if, if you have any idea of why it seems so hard to kind of uh, walk that line, or if there are any fig- thinkers or politicians today that you do think are successfully um, sort of uh, hitting the note of the sort of the sort of uh, skepticism about a certain kind of expert authority, but without tipping over into this completely conspiratorial worldview. Yeah, that's a great question. And the answer, unfortunately, right now is no, though there are people who I think have much less of a tendency toward either sort of technocracy and scientism on one side or this sort of wild uh, conspiracy theory. Um, but it, it, we, we, there is a kind of vacuum of leadership in that respect, in part because polarization has happened around whether or not you're willing to sort of assent to the, the reigning theories or approach toward toward it, you know? So yeah, listening to someone like Robert F. Kennedy, it, for me is just this wild experience because he'll say something eminently sane, you know, he'll say something like, 
let's you know stay in dialogue with all Americans and 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 not you know polarize and 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 shut down the conversation too quickly. But then in the next breath, he'll be he'll be trotting out this kind of wild conspiracy theory about the origin of the virus or something like this. And I think that the as as hard as it is. Um, the reason that our culture right now is throwing up these figures like like Kennedy, like Trump, um, who thrive on conspiracy theories, is because ordinary people sense intuitively that science is being overstretched, and they have some concrete experience of that in their lives, like say the schools being shut down or something else, and then they overreact. And the, one of the biggest, um, almost it would almost be comic if it weren't so serious, but dynamics of of ideology in our society right now is that then the conspiracy theorists make this kind of almost um, clownish doppelganger of, of science itself, where you know they'll come up with some underlying structural theory that's supposed to explain everything, that's supposed to be empirically and factually true if you could just see it, right? This is often the form right. the conspiracy theories take. It, they almost sound like um, they're echoing the way that someone who has a simplistic idea of how science works thinks that science works, right? And now they have the real science. And so I think that there's this kind of um, vicious feedback loop between something, a real experience of scientific authority being abused, and then people um, go deeper and deeper into misinformation and into constructing sort of like a parascience that's not really science at all. It's, It's conspiracy theory. And that's sort of how I think of Robert F. Kennedy or aspects of Trumpism, because you know, Trumpism is so complicated and sprawling at this point. But one aspect of Trumpism is certainly the conspiratorial thinking. And the surge that they feel behind them comes from the fact that people are energized by this sense of grievance or injustice um, that's been done to them, if we're just talking about the scientism portion right now, because there's racial dynamics and all kinds of other stuff going on. But you know, the, the grievance that's been done to them by experts who did not hear them out, did not listen to what was going on in their lives. And unfortunately, right now, the polarization is such that to advance within the parties, uh, post-Trump and the Republican Party, you have to, if, if not accept just wild conspiracy theories, you have to at least be quiet about them. And then um, right now, the Democratic Party has polarized in the direction of, you know, basically showing a tremendous amount of reverence toward technocratic authority. As, right. as a sign of, of belonging to the party. It might be that some of these figures like Bernie Sanders, or I would have to listen more, but it might be that some of these figures out, a little bit outside, but that don't pick up on the conspiracy theories aren't in that place. Um, but I would need to listen more. And I really think there's a vacuum there, to be honest with you, politically. Yeah, it's an interesting point how it becomes almost an identity marker, sort of which side you're on. And there's not really an identity in that in that more, I don't know, middle position. Mm-hmm. Um Joe Rogan's another figure I think of in this vein, you know, who in some ways has built an audience on questioning authority in ways that are good, but then also, you know, tends to tends to go down this this conspiracy path. So, yeah. Oh, I wanted to just ask you a little bit about the response to your article so far. And I, I remember uh, I saw on Twitter you were you were sort of responding to one strain of response, which was from people who are um, data people, basically who were kind of saying, well, it's not fair to blame us for the response because we never had the kind of, we never had full control. People didn't listen to us, <laughs> which is kind of an, a kind of a funny yeah. response to, to your article. Yeah, it really did sort of take me aback. You know, I, I should have expected it, but I, I somehow didn't. And there were, there were several people who, who did respond as self-identified wonks and, and 
data crunchers. And, you know, the response was, hey, you know, there was never compliance to any of our policies. There was never anything like universal compliance, but there wasn't even just the minimal compliance we would have liked to see. And in a way, I had to laugh because, of course, they're right, you know. Um, They're right that there was never anything like full compliance. But the reason I had to laugh is because what I think the technocrat is really missing is what generates legitimacy in a democratic society. If you're not going to treat people like children and just tell them what their lives are about, if you're going to let them have a say in what their own political community looks like, you're going to have to do the difficult work of a dialogue, of listening back and forth. And if the populists can be, if we want to call them that for a minute, I don't love that term, but if we want to call them the populists for a minute, can be chided for not listening, really listening to the scientists and experts, the scientists and experts certainly need to be chided for not sitting down and listening to what ordinary people are wrestling with in their lives and what they think um, is significant, right? And I think one of the reasons that compliance was frustratingly low, and I, I felt both sides of that movie theater that I opened the piece with. I don't think people realize that. I was both those people during the pandemic. I was the muted panic guy and I was the popcorn eating one. And I was the person who was mad at this slouching free noser, you know, the mask <laughs> is down over the mouth. Come on. Like my son has asthma, you know, like get that thing up over your nose. But at the same time, um, in order for, uh, in, in, at least if you're going to practice something that looks like democracy and not some form of top-down politics, in order to gain legitimacy for your policy, people have to think this somewhat reflects something that I was heard out on and deliberated upon. And it reflects in some ways, to some extent, my values, or it could in the future, even if I lost this round in a democracy, they'll, I'll be listened to in the future. Instead, we got these basically moral um, lectures about, you know, why isn't there enough code compliance with this sort of, um, uh, you know, regime of health. And that, in in sense, is to me deeply... Um, deeply ironic that that technocrats wanted more power, but they didn't realize that they're, you have to pass through human agency. You have to get, if you want to call it buy-in or citizen identification with what's going on. Otherwise, it's just what you're asking is too hard. People have to believe in what they're doing during a pandemic. It's too hard otherwise, you know? And if they don't believe in it, you're going to have the plague of free nosers and everything else that we dealt with, you know, it was insanity. It was, it was a babble of tongues to me. It was people going every direction. Free nosers. <laughs> well, I like it. Well, I mean, the whole idea of hundred percent compliance, again, on your theory, like it's a misunderstanding of what social scientific theory is or social theory, you know, you're dealing with human beings. There's never going to be hundred percent compliance. Yeah. And I'm glad you said that because I think one of the real blind spots, if you have a kind of tech, if you think there's a science of society, then it's a big temptation to treat um, society itself as an object that you can uh, manipulate and, and, and you always need more control and more of a grip on it. It's like a mute object that you just need to get the levers right, the mechanisms right, the policy in place. But if your view of society is more um, humanistic, like the one I subscribe to, then you're in relationship with a bunch of people. You know, and the idea that you could just get people to finally do your will the way you can get a rocket ship to launch or, you know, throw a projectile or something is just it's a non-starter. You're dealing with other agents who have beliefs. who have, So you're going to have to get into dialogue, conflict, contestation, um, and, and you're never going to have total control over because no one does, you know, so. Right. Particularly in a democracy or in something that aspires to be a democracy. Right. 
Um, so I just I want to end actually with with sort of a question that goes to the ending of your piece, and you talk a bit about the legacy of COVID and the you know how it will affect how we how we deal with future disasters or crises. And I think for a reader, a lot of readers, uh, climate change will come to mind as as you're talking about this and as we go through this very hot summer. Um, you know, people people are thinking about that as another challenge that, like COVID, spans across, um, you know, a lot of the world. And one, one, I guess, challenge I would have to your point, you know, it's a very attractive vision you have of local communities getting together and deciding what's most important to them. But is there a problem with that when you're dealing with somewhat something like climate change where what one community decides can't be sequestered within that community? Like what if a community decides to us it's more important to um, have great air conditioning all the time and then uh, to have clean air? But that air then will affect, you know, the people in the in the neighboring community who might make a different evaluation. Um do you think that some of these problems that are sort of can be uh, obviously more than just uh, national and even global issues, how are we going to navigate those things in a democrat in, in the democratic way that you describe? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, because I certainly don't subscribe to just there being no problems that require global coordination or, you know, a country level coordination. Um, certainly there are and climate change is a big one. I do think it's already getting off on the wrong step to assume a sort of, um, and I'm not suggesting that you you were you were saying this, but to to begin from the vision or the dream, the fantasy really of, but what if I could just have total control from the top down? As difficult and daunting as it sounds to to say that politics has to start from the bottom up, there really is no alternative other than constant sort of authoritarian impositions. Now, the hope would be on something like climate change, which to me is a big one on the horizon is, okay, you know, as ecological catastrophes um, continue to sort of exacerbate, uh, how are we going to get people to deliberate on what reasonable um, political legal strategy are? We're in the same dynamic, aren't we? We're in the same dance. We've got people saying there is no such thing as climate change, right? And then we've got others saying climate change just means you must do X, right? Like the only scientific policy is X. So do it now, and if you don't, you're going to get a greener than thou lecture, you know. Yeah, and, it, and it, it feels to me too like they're similarly related. Where some of the people that say there's no such thing don't actually believe that, but it's a way of expressing a kind of resistance to the to the top down moralizing about it. Yeah, and there is always this very confusing. Um, I mean, if you wanted to be generous, you could call it almost puckishness, but it could, it could be seen as sinister. Where it's it's almost as this being done to just sort of um, stoke controversy, own the libs, as they say online, that kind of a thing. Um, but I think that as difficult as it is, uh, once you believe in sort of uh, the affirmation of human agency and the the dignity of people to have some say in, over their political life, there really is no substitute for percolating you know, from the bottom up and then hoping that coordination can happen in a true, sincere, solidaristic way the further up you go globally. But the assumption that we could occupy a kind of global perspective and then impose the enlightened green regime on everyone, I, I, I would hold that that is going to lead to all kinds of blowbacks that will you know, create fragmentation and just a complete self-defeat, sort of like what we saw with the pandemic is why was the American um, 
case so fraught? Why why was the response to to the pandemic so chaotic and tense? And instead of having, I think many people noticed this, and sensitive people felt sad about it. That where's the solidarity, right? I mean, this is a virus. This is a disease. There are people who are sick around you. Um, this this is a, a communal sacrifice that's being asked of us. People are being asked to lose a lot in in many many different ways. Where's the solidarity? You know, and I don't think you can generate. I don't think you can impose um, solidarity. You have to do the hard work of of starting from the people around you. So in that sense, I I, I suppose I think there are no shortcuts really, and I, I think it's a fake shortcut to to try to start higher. You need to go bottom up, not not top down on my view. But I admit it's really, really difficult, but that's where yeah. we're at, you know? All right. Well, I think that's probably a good place to end. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks so much for joining me on this, Jason, and uh, and for writing this this really important article. Thank you, John. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org slash save.